and good morning and welcome to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm really pleased to have back at the microphone Phil Osborne from Philborn Consulting. He's also a responsible manager within his own licensed practice, which I'm an RM of as well, and that's why we know each other. We've known each other for a number of years, and I'm really pleased to have Phil here collaborating. And one of the reasons I've asked him along today is, many of you may not know, but Phil is also a licensed financial planner. Now, I used to be one as well. And one of the questions that I get asked quite a lot, and I try not to give advice because I don't give advice anymore. There's a whole range of reasons why. Um, But uh, one of the things I get asked to look at is what red flags should we be looking at? And so Phil and I were talking about this recently, and we thought it'd be a great topic for a radio show because I think there are some key things that all investors need to be looking at. And I mean, Phil, you know this as well. You hate reading these bad luck stories when people get ripped off for hundreds of thousands of dollars, don't you? Oh, look, absolutely. It's uh, it's one of those things that uh, you just wonder did they just go for the bright, shiny lights or did they actually think about <laughs> what it was that it, when it was presented to them? Yeah. It, it really reminds me of the the the, um, the insect uh, light at the end of the, you know, in the middle yeah. of the night where they fly into the thing and, and they get zapped. Uh, yeah. And, yes. and and everyone's sitting back going, didn't you see that it was an insect trap? And, and, yeah, and yeah. so... I think one of the things what I wanted to do today is really cover off some blatant, absolutely blatant red flags that I see. And I get asked by many uh, uh, a friend and investor to look at other investments. And so I'm cautious because I'm not going to come out and necessarily say one way or the other, but there are some key things we need to look at. And I've used also the, the basis of our discussion today is a, a nice article I found recently on, on the web about, and it's titled Investment Warning Signs and Red Flags and learn how to avoid bad investments. Now, the the opening title, <laughs> talk about statements of the bleeding obvious, Phil. The opening heading they've got here is why you should avoid bad investments. So let me ask you that question. <laughs> why do you think you should avoid, avoid bad investments? Yeah, uh, that's, that's the the Captain Obvious question, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, you, you work hard for your money. For God's sake, make sure that you're spending a little bit of time thinking about it and what actually goes on. Um, it, it's the old thing, Ray. It's, it's the whole concept of risk and reward. And if somebody's promising you something and it just sounds too good to be true, the use it. It usually is. And that's that's the big thing that people really need to get their heads around, that uh, if somebody's coming up and they're promising double-digit returns, and I think it was you and I talked the other day about the fact somebody, um, everybody wants the uh, high-returning, um, tax-effective, capital-guaranteed investment. Guaranteed. It, that's, that's, that's right. It. Guaranteed. It, it just does not happen. It is not there. So th- that's the deal. It's one of those things. It's it, it's a bit of, again, I refer to a lot when I talk to people about the trade-off concept. Okay, look, you want the big returns. Guess what? You're not going to get those guarantees, and you're going to get a bit of volatility over time. Um, but over the long term, term, you should do better. Again, don't have crystal ball. I can't promise that that's going to be the case. But ultimately, that's the way, generally speaking, that the market works. Now, if you're more concerned about the guarantees and not having that volatility, no problem. The trade-off there is that you actually say, okay, well, I'm prepared to accept a bit lesser of a return. So 
I can sleep at night and I can actually say, yes, I'm happy with my investment where it is. I know it's safe. I know it's secure, but I'm going to accept a lower return because that's more important to me. Um, gentlemen, we both know Peter Johnston, uh, the head of the AIOFP, he very much talks uh, on a regular basis. It's not about the return on your money, it's about the return of your of money. Your money, yeah. That's it, yeah. Yeah, I focus on that. Now, one of the things when I first started uh, trading uh, during or just before the GFC hit, I was actually working in a trading floor and I was working for this uh, fellow, and I, I won't mention him by name, but he had a PhD in mathematics. And he said to me, he showed me one day the simplest of mathematics of why you should avoid losing money. Now, you and I both sit here and anybody listening to this show today will sit there and say, as you rightly said, talk about Captain Obvious. Of course, we don't want to lose money. But he showed me this mathematics. And I simply want you to imagine, OK, you have $100. You go and invest your $100 and unfortunately you lose 20%. Okay, you you invest some money. Let's say you buy uh, a stock, uh, you know, a, a something on the ASX or wherever, and the stock goes down and you lose twenty percent. So your hundred dollars is now what? Eighty dollars. Eighty bucks. Okay. <laughs> now, now I, sat there, there, right? I <laughs> sat there. I sat there. I sat there and I looked at this sum and I looked at him and I said, "You've got a PhD, maths, and you're showing me this. Of course, it's going to be eighty dollars." He said, "Yes." He said, "But." What kind of return must you now get on that $80 to recoup your $20 back? Now, most people will immediately flick and go, oh, you've got to get your 20% back. That's not correct because to get a 20 a $20 return on $80, you've now got to get a return of, wait for it, 25%. Yeah. And this is where he showed me, he said, this is why you should avoid losses at all times. He said, if you have to reduce your gains, that's okay. You know, if you don't make as much, that's not a bad thing. But if you lose money, the impact of that loss is actually heightened because to recoup that loss. And all of a sudden, i got to tell you, it was like an epiphany <laughs> that I, I saw this. And the maths is so simple. When you draw it out, $100 less 20% equals 80 bucks. But to get that $20 back, you've actually got to, invest that $80 and get a 25% return. And I, I've said to people as well, uh, on many occasions, debt costs you so much more. I mean, mm. in, in, when you think about interest rates today on credit cards, what are they they're ranging anywhere from 18s, 19s up to 24s for a credit card? And we're getting the princely sum of how much at the bank at the moment? Oh, what are we getting anything at the bank? Uh, yeah, I think we have to pay them right now <laughs> yeah. to have our money in the bank. But let's say, let's be generous and let's say a half a percent to one percent. So it costs you 20 times more to be in debt than to not be in debt. And so I look at these very cold, hard, raw numbers. And so when I look at this very first paragraph of this, why you should avoid bad investments. There it is. Not just the captain obvious that you and I have just spoken about, Phil, that it makes perfect sense not to lose money. But I don't know what happens when investors all of a sudden take their money out of the bank. It all of a sudden becomes confetti and they start treating it like chump change and throwing it around with gay band. And I'm looking at them going, madam, sir, it's taken you a lifetime of work for you to build up this equity 
don't treat it so poorly and throw it to the wind. And so let, let's start looking at, and in fact, the very first uh, of these red flags that this article raises is the promise of high returns. And I, yes. I've written, gosh, how many, I've written a number of e-booklets and at the end of each of my e-booklets, I keep on saying to people, if it sounds too good to be true, it most likely isn't. Okay. And I think some of the more obvious ones, Phil, in your time of financial planning, I mean, what are the more obvious ones that you've seen come across your desk that you saw you know, from a, a high return perspective that you sort of looked at your clients and said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, I, I really think you should look, it looks attractive, but <laughs> yeah, there have been instances, <clears throat> and we don't necessarily need to name names, but let's talk about schemes, for example. Yeah, look, I, look, I, I think that there's, um, again, it's this uh, with people coming along in these great stories uh, that they have to tell. And one I remember was an investment scheme where you invested in willow trees. Willow trees? You invested in willow trees is because they use those to make cricket bats and every kid in India wants a cricket bat. So we're just going to make an absolute fortune by growing these trees that are going to be used to make cricket bats to go to India. And it's, again, you think, okay, <laughs> that's good. But ultimately, let's talk about is that going to saturate a market? How big is that particular market? What's the price of the bats going over there going to be? I mean, it's not just about producing all of these numbers. If you've got to produce a cricket bat that's going to be sold for 10 bucks over in India and it's got to be uh, grown, made, transported and all of that sort of thing, um, you might only there might only be 50 cents or 20 cents profit out of the whole deal, but they're looking at large numbers. But again, this is where people can come to you with a really good story and oh wow that sounds good and that's what it's designed to do let's understand nobody is ever going to come to you and say hey i've got this investment but you know it's really not going to get you much of it <laughs> yeah and, and it's, it, there's a bit of risk involved with it too and um all of that nobody's going to come along with that and that's the part where you've all where you've got to have a look at what it is and is it viable does it actually make sense oh, um, i couldn't and, agree more do you know? and again i say this in my booklet how does the firm make their money? I mean, that's one of the basic questions that you need to ask yourself. And does the model make sense? And so, look, we've, we've hit on some really good items. It's uh, time for a short station announcement. You're here on Dollars and Making Sense. I'm here with Phil Osborne from Philborn Consulting and Dirigier Advisory. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Treveson from OTG Capital. And at the microphone today, I have Phil Osborne from Philborn Consulting and Dirichir Advisory. And we are talking about investment warning signs and red flags. Now, before we went to the break, we were talking about Captain Obvious, you know, why are we not investing money to lose it, but actually make money? And I think we've I think we've done that one to death. And the promise of high returns should always be very, very carefully looked at. And I think, Phil, you make the obvious, but I, I sometimes get really confused. I've been to some investment seminars where I've watched upwards of a thousand people walk into the Wesley Center in town and listen to the investing gurus and some of these are TV personalities whom in my heart of hearts I really believe they should know better but they have an axe they have an axe to grind without a shadow of doubt but the level of belief 
and the level of um, I, I I don't like to use the word stupidity because I think that's really offensive to the poor people. I think they're genuinely looking for people to help them get the best possible returns for their money. I really do believe that. And so when I read and watch these hard luck stories on TV programs like A Current Affair or 730 or the consumer rights types of shows, my heart really feels for them because I don't think of them as stupid people. I just think of them as being normal, everyday people that have said, you know what, you sound like a good person and the story sounds fine and I'm going to trust you. But that's not good enough, is it, Phil? Uh, that's that's the thing, and that you, you've uh, you've identified a couple of things there, Ray, in terms of people getting television personalities to come along and do certain things. I mean, let's have a look at um, wh- one of the Wiggles. I think it's the Blue Wiggle who uh, put all of his wealth into this company that was going to develop these homes that uh, were totally artificial intelligence operated so it would open on the sound of your voice it would turn the stove on at the sound of your voice and it fell in an absolute hole so just because somebody's well known or a television personality doesn't mean to say that that's what their actual skill is in actual actually doing. Um, talk to somebody who's got a track record. They actually work in the area. They know what's going on. Um, and it is a big thing. You see somebody on TV and they've got a certain reputation and you think, oh, beauty, we can trust this person. I'll listen to what it is. Oh, such and such did this, so uh, therefore it must be pretty good. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's not just investment. You see that with, of course, too. They get on and they sell certain products and, oh, such and such uses this therefore it must be pretty good and you get it out of the box and falls apart and doesn't work so it's the same kind of thing make sure you have a think about what it is but if you're going to put your money somewhere then you need to actually speak to people that that's what they do for a living and then when you do that ask questions to make sure that they are actually valid and they know what they're doing what's their background what's their experience what have they actually been doing Again, we have people in the industry that are very good uh, about talking themselves up and what it is that they actually do. Now, that's great. But again, let's ask for some facts. Don't just take everything on face value because, as you said, you don't want to um, you don't want to lose money. Let's face it. No, um, yeah, you really don't. we might take a bit of risk with an investment that we do on the basis that it'll do something over time, and there may be a bit of volatility in the market. Nobody's suggesting that you don't actually have that happen, but you don't lose money until either a it's just totally gone and you can never get it back, or if the investment has made a loss and you pull it out of the market at that particular point in time, then you're the one who's actually made the loss at that point. So again, it's a long, uh, a long-term view you've got to take and make sure you're doing um, doing all of those things and thinking about it. Um, it was very interesting. The guy who won the 2002 Nobel Prize for Economics was a psychologist, uh, a gent by the name of uh, Dr. Daniel Kahneman. And For years and years, the investment gurus were all talking about what would the rational investor do? What would the rational investor do? And this guy came along and said, well, hang on, here's the thing. Um, If there's anything that people are not rational about, it's their money. So yeah. how can you talk about a <laughs> rational investor? That's an oxymoron. Oh, isn't so it ever? that's where he's uh, come along with a different way of looking at it and saying, okay, look, you need to do things differently. You need to think about things and let's try and take the emotion out of it. Um, and he promotes very heavily things like index funds because you'll get the market ride rather than um, trying to pick a winner here and there. And 
that's one of the other things that occurs too, people picking a winner here and there. Where did you get the idea from? Did you get that speaking to your brother-in-law over the table at Christmas dinner? And all of a sudden, there's two things that happen there. Number one, you hear this fantastic story about what the brother-in-law's done. You think, oh, gee, I should get into that too. Oh, that's fantastic. Great tip. So you think, oh, beauty, that's a good tip. But you've also got the fear of missing out. That's saying, oh, geez, the brother-in-law's doing well. I probably should do something to make sure that I'm at least keeping up. And next year when we get back together at Christmas, I'll be able to be the one telling the story of how well I'm doing and yeah. that sort of thing. And that's no way to actually make your investment no, decisions no. and no basis to do that with. That, that so again, FOMO, yeah, the FOMO thing, the fear of missing out, I think we could apply equally in, in big measure to a lot of crypto type oh, of yeah. uh, uh, investments that I'm seeing happening at the moment because, again, Bitcoin has just hit a record high. It's just popped $63,000. And I mean, I remember being at a conference uh, about eight years ago. It was two. It was yeah. $2 back then. Yeah. And uh, and I didn't get on the bandwagon. But believe me, I don't lose sleep about not having got on the bandwagon. But yeah. one of the interesting things about this article that I'm referring to about investment warning signs and red flags, Phil, and it's missing in this one because this is an American article. It's a lot of pertinent points. But I want to talk about something that's very pertinent here in the Australian scenario and you and I have dealt with this on many, many occasions, but it's the red flag that I point anybody to at any time. Is the person you are dealing with licensed and authorised to deal in the financial product? So, ladies and gentlemen, the thing you must get into your head, if somebody's trying to sell you a financial product of any description, whether it be an insurance policy, whether it be an investment, whether it be a, a scheme that you participate in, they must be licensed. And given that I have on, on the other end of this microphone, literally one of the, the, the smartest compliance minds in the country. Phil, what... Have you got, have you got another guest? Yeah, you? yeah, right. Thank <laughs> you. But, um, maybe it might um, help. Can you uh, explain the terms AR and CAR that people might see at the bottom of um, investment uh, pamphlets and the like? Yeah, look, the, the big one is the AR because the AR is your authorised representative. And that's the individual who is the person actually giving you the advice. Now, the core, the CAR, the C comes in for corporate. So it's a corporate authorised representative. And that's the company that sits over the top and engages particular ARs and what it is that they actually do. But ultimately, as you were saying, Ray, if you've got, if you want to have somebody that's got that training and expertise and background, you've got to look at who the AR is and what it is that they're actually doing. They are required to have a certain level of education. Um, they have to provide you with a financial services guide that tells them about who they're licensed through. Now, you and I, we're both licensed through our, our licensed uh, Durageri advisory. Um, so we're giving, uh, when we give a financial services guide to somebody, that tells them all about what that business is, what we um, are able to provide advice on because not everybody is necessarily authorised to be able to provide advice on everything that's out in the marketplace. And even with those things that they may be able to provide advice about, there will usually be what's called an approved product list that they will then operate from. So there's a restriction then underneath what the actual overall market might actually produce in the areas that they're authorised with as well. So your AR, that's the person who has the knowledge, experience, and will be putting together the recommendations for you. The corporate entity or the CAR, 
that's the business that sits over the top and houses all of those individuals. Okay, so the AR sits under the CAR, so the yep. R's and cars, and then over the top of that, they have an AFSL, an Australian Financial Services Licence. And so one of the red flags that I say to anybody and everybody is if you're dealing with somebody and whether they are giving you financial advice, be it general or personal, or they are trying to sell you a product, be it insurance or whatever. And if you're not sure, ladies and gentlemen, check out some of the big guys. At the bottom of all of their advertising, you will see the small print, and in that fine print, they will quote their AR number, their car number, and also their AFSL. And you can grab those numbers and go to the ASIC website, asic.gov.au, and look them up and actually see what their license actually pertains to. So, for example, if somebody is there out there giving you superannuation advice, okay, they may not be licensed to do that. So it's very easy to go back to a government database that, that's run by ASIC, and you can look up Phil Osborne and Phil's AR status will have everything that he is licensed to be able to give general and personal advice to. Now, for my instance, because I run a fund, I don't give advice, but I am still licensed to operate my fund. And so I have expertise in managed investment schemes. And so everybody that is out there in this industry needs to be legislatively covered and from a regulatory perspective. And so from the biggest red flag of all, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't see those numbers being quoted or they're not on the website, that immediately, big alarm bells, I mean, that immediately says, because first and foremost, what they're doing is illegal, okay? They're not allowed to do what they're doing. Now, they may then bluff and bluster and say, oh, no, 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 we don't need any of that stuff, because I'm sure they don't, because if they're trying to grab your money and uh, once they've got your money and they scarper, there's no recourse because if you you don't have that coverage, you you have no rights. That's the other thing. Yeah. Isn't that true, Phil? Yeah, look, absolutely. And there was a really good case of that in uh, New South Wales uh, with a lady who was uh, um, putting herself out there as a financial advisor. And this, this is a key, a key thing to remember is that there's no regulation that says you can only use the term financial advisor if you have these particular requirements. So anybody out there can call themselves that. And that's where we see a lot of people who offer loans because they talk about the way they structure your loan. They think that the, it's okay to call themselves a financial advisor. And that was the particular case in this instance, but she was encouraging, as I understand it, and it, people to put money with her and there was no, she was not uh, under any AFSL, she held no qualifications to be seen as being an authorised representative or an AR. And yes, as a result, money gone. Uh, that, that's, that's it, end of the day. The really sad thing that I found with that was that the media and uh, ASIC and the police were all still referring to this lady as a financial, a financial advisor, which annoys exactly. us for those and, of and us that have gone through part. the hassle. Yeah. Yeah. But the other side of it is it's it's not so much, oh, okay, yeah, they used the wrong word. It tars everybody else who oh, is a absolutely. with exactly the same brush. So for those of us who are out there who've done the study, are doing the continuing education, have uh, been authorised, all of that sort of thing. And as you know, with our licence, um, one of the requirements is that we are 
we need to make sure that we have in place um, a facility by which if there is ever any issue that comes up that a client can be looked after. And as a result, we have to carry a certain amount of insurance uh, should there ever be a claim for which we are actually held liable. Now, if you don't speak to somebody who is licensed under that type of situation, then they do not have those arrangements in place. And you are absolutely going to do your dough if that's the, that's the case. And and so I think with all these articles that you can see, ladies and gentlemen, you bring it back into an Australian context. And the reason why I enjoy having both Philippa and Phil talk about these subjects is because they are both licensed, as am I. And so we know what we're talking about. We also have the comfort of our education and also our accreditation with our industry bodies that we know the the solid ground that we speak from. And we also know our limits on what we can't speak on as well. And, And one of the things that you may or may not know, but at the end of every show before we do our market wrap on dollars and making sense, you'll hear me or Phil or Philippa talk about a disclaimer that says we are giving general advice only and you can't take anything that we're saying during these shows as personal advice. Now, the reason we say that is because we understand the ramifications that if you were to take our information and invest on that basis and lose money, we could potentially be liable. Now, The thing that always staggers me is that people that don't care about this stuff don't care because they're not covered by licenses and insurances and stuff. They're doing it all free market. And and if they rip you off, they don't care because they're off to the races with your cash. Now, it's a good time to take a bit of a break. We're going to go back through this list of uh, other red flags, but I think it's really worthwhile to talk about the Australian context. There are a lot of protections and agreements and insurances in place to protect you, the consumer. And so I think it's important that we raise those. We're going to go for a short break, Phil. Thanks for being at the microphone. I'm Ray Trevison from OTG Capital. You have Phil Osborne from Philborn Consulting and Dirigere Advisory. We'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Dollars and Making Sense. I'm Ray Trevison from OTG Capital. And at the microphone, I have Phil Osborne from Board Consulting and Dirigere Advisory. Now, we've been talking about the red flags about investments and what you should be looking at and what to avoid if, in case you don't want to lose your money. Now, we've been talking a lot about AFSLs and CARs and ARs and authorised representatives and the like and the mathematics of losing money. And I think if you take away anything from today's broadcast, ladies and gentlemen, that mathematics of losing $20 out of 100 doesn't mean you've got to recoup 20%, but you've got to recoup 25%. I think that's one of the most valuable lessons I think I ever, ever learned when I first started investing, the straight mathematics of why you shouldn't be losing money. But look, one of the things we're going to get into now, uh, Phil, this particular article talks about a number of things. So once you've actually started an investment, and so you're going down the path and all of a sudden things start changing and they start pointing out some red flags. So a couple of things they talk about here is moving the goalposts and delayed redemptions. Now, this is interesting from the perspective because I actually run a unit trust and so we provide fixed income uh, returns to, you know, to our investors via the form of monthly returns. Now, I know what would happen if I started saying to my clients, listen, 
um, you know, you want your money back. It's going to take a lot longer than what's, you know, I, I said it was going to be. Now, what kind of red flags would that flag to you as a financial advisor, for example? Yeah, look, that's uh, that that's a big one. I, I mean, having uh, gone through the GFC and uh, with things that they now call frozen funds, that oh um, yeah, yeah. So that that's the thing. There, all of a sudden, if people are saying that, oh yeah, look, you're going to have to wait a bit longer for your money, then you've got to worry about where the money is. Has it been spent? Has it been oh. to do other things? Or is it that the investments that have actually been selected are all of a sudden, they're just hanging on to cash because they've done something and people are ripping their money out of them and that type of thing. So it's, it's a bit of a warning sign. It's not necessarily something that uh, you necessarily are going to lose everything with, but it's certainly something to ask some questions about and maybe do some, uh, maybe work out, do you say, okay, we do want to redeem a part of it and we're happy to wait for that period of time to do it. Um, but this, I suppose, points to the big thing about what we talk about with diversification. And it's, it's another issue for people that invest um, because quite often they'll say, oh, beauty, it's, it's like putting all the money on the 100 to 1 long shot and mm. say, beauty, let's have a go with it. And when that loses, they lose all of their dough. If you're looking at things that might have these type of characteristics, yeah, look, have a go at it, but don't put all of your money into it. Um, yeah. Use it as what we call a tilt. Yeah. I, I must say one of the things I often warn people, and I actually write in my e-booklets, is that if there's a, an ability, let's say you loan uh, money to a company via the form of a bond, and corporate bonds are out there. You can buy them on the ASX. You can buy them with every company out there that's listed on the ASX today have corporate bonds. Now, there's nothing wrong with them. They, they return anything from threes up to fives and sixes. You know, they're pretty solid returns. But the difficulty I have with bonds is if all of a sudden they come back and when they mature, when they mature, that means you get your money back. But if the company all of a sudden comes back and says, listen, sorry, we don't actually have the cash, but hey, in place, we're going to give you some script. We're going to give you shares in the company that you loaned the money to. Now, some people might sit there and go, well, you know what? If that was Facebook when they first started, you sit there and scratch <laughs> your head and go, well, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. But um, let me give you a very good example where they did that, Dick Smith. And then yeah. all of a sudden they gave him stock in Dick Smith and everyone's screaming blue murder, you know, screaming blue murder going, no, I don't want shares in that company. <laughs> and so you've got to be careful what they actually trade it back for. And and I, I guess some of these others are lack of liquidity so that if you are redeeming from a unit trust and all of a sudden they come back and say, look, you know, we don't quite have the, the, the money right now or, or – uh, the big one that's been happening as well in the last few years uh, that's a big favourite with a lot of retirees, and you must see this as well, Phil, is that many of the big banks and the big uh, corporates, the big uh, you know, ASX top 20s and the like, have been cutting dividends. And yes. so it's one of these things that they don't make a big hullabaloo about. They don't go out, you know, they're not rouncing, hey, we're opening this big mine and making lots of money. You know, when they're going, oh, and we're also just reducing our dividends as well. They tend to whisper that, you know, they, it's like, you know, on a Friday afternoon, they, they used to refer this in uh, West Wing, the take out the trash day uh, is Friday. Yes. 
And so that's the day you look for all of these kinds. Exactly. You pay, because that's the day that all the crap announcements come out from politicians and from companies as well. So they'll release the bad dividend or they'll release the lousy market response because they they don't want people to notice and they certainly don't want the market to notice as well, but they've still got to do their duty and let people know. Now, Another one that's really interesting here, the number four they've got here is no third party involved in administration of assets. Now, if you saw that in um, in somebody's product description or their information memorandum, what kind of a flag would that raise to you, Phil? In terms of saying that there is no other party that's actually involved, yeah, look, it's again then you're giving all your money to that person. And that person is then looking after it. It's not like that there is a trustee of some sort that might be uh, overseeing what's happening, uh, what's happening with the funds, and essentially putting, a, I suppose, a layer of due diligence into it to make sure that the investment is being managed uh, according to Hoyle, as the saying goes, that it is actually <laughs> following the uh, the rules, regulations, and everything's being done with the investor in mind uh, rather than trying to prop up the fund or that type of thing and uh, taking out performance fees or something where they shouldn't be taken out or taking out uh, a certain fee because the director needs a new car or something along those <laughs> sort of lines. So that, that's the type of thing there. So it's one of those that you have a look at it. I mean, um, perpetual trustees is a very popular one here in Australia in terms of them doing uh, work as uh, responsible entities mm-hmm. uh, for various groups. So it's certainly something, while it doesn't mean to say that the person who is running the fund isn't doing a good job. It's just a case to say, yeah, look, there's a little bit of accountability when you do have that third person who's looking at it. And make sure, again, you have a look and see who it is and what their track record is in looking after such things, that they've done the right thing. And and I, I, I'll blow my own trumpet here a little bit, uh, Phil, even though it is community radio, but you know, we use a public trustee for exactly that reason. I, I need to give investors the comfort that they know that I don't have direct access to their money. So when yep. they invest in in our trust, for example, the money goes to the public trustee. And in, in this case, it's AMAL trustees. They're a big company. They've got $16 billion uh, under management. So they've been around. They have lots and lots of funds there. And so the investor gets a lot of comfort to know that they're not the only one. But yeah. also that when that money arrives, Ray doesn't touch it. I give instructions, but yeah. there is always somebody else in charge of that cash, and that gives comfort that there is a third party yeah, as absolutely. oversight. Yeah. The other thing that comes with that, and just sort of touching on this for the moment too, and it applies to the third party, but it also applies elsewhere, is that when you go back and having sort of been around for a little while now. <laughs> uh, that's a session. In- We're old, right? We're old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, the amount of information that's actually available to the consumer to jump on and do the old Google search, if, if oh, that's what happens. Yeah. So, Put in AMAL trustees, see what comes up. You can actually have a look and you can see who the people are, what they're doing. You can put in OTG Capital. You can have a look and see what it's doing. Um, You can put in Dirigere Advisory and you'll see exactly what's going on there. So whereas before in the the past, all those years ago, you never had that access to be able to do that. So there's, there's no excuse for people these days to be putting money into places that they can't do that research on. 
I, I got to say, and, and again, I keep harping back to my e-booklets. I wrote these booklets specifically so that I could warn people and say, look, this is the kind of stuff that you should be reading about. You should be, you know, nobody has an excuse anymore. Even the most basic of smartphones that you can buy for, for $25 at Woolies or Kmart these days will access the internet and within five minutes of you doing some Google searches, you will have an ASIC report. You can have a you can download their company register. You can look at each and every director of that company. You can find out whether they have a criminal record or not. You can see if they've got any outstanding legal uh, terms or, or cases against them. And so if you've got any doubt about anybody you're dealing with in an investment, then I really say this, and I say this often, caveat emptor, buy beware, but, you know, today in the modern age and the internet, you don't have an excuse. You have nowhere to hide when yep. you say, well, I didn't know. It's like, you know, worst case scenario, you can pick up the phone and talk to people. And I, I love this website resource all the time. It's a government one, Money Smart, moneysmart.gov.com, that's right, moneysmart.com.au but it's run by the Australian Tax Office. Now, they will help you as well, and that's free. And so I, I look at all these things when you, you know, I look at these red flags and so much of it, I mean, gosh, I hate seeing these stories when people get ripped off. And, you know, I, I was reading recently where uh, there were people that, that got done for about a quarter of a million dollars. They thought they were buying a lease in a house in perpetuity. So these are retirees. And they're being now kicked out of their homes because what they were actually signing up for was a very risky investment, but they didn't read the fine print. And and I just and and they've got no legal leg to step stand on. And that kind of stuff makes me weep, not just for them because it's a very sad situation, but it, I make it I, I weep for our industry as well, Phil. Because yep. you know the number of times, and I see this even on web interactions. You know, I, I've actually been called a liar, you know, yeah. they, you know they, they say, oh, we don't believe the return you've got. And I go, wait, 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 hang on a moment. You know, yeah. I, I'm happy to be challenged and, you know, please yeah. show me. But, you know, you're calling me a liar. Yeah, all you financial planners and, and, and investment funds, you're all rip-off merchants. And we, yeah. we have this stench, we have this stain, don't we, because of these shonks. Yeah. Look, we, we do. There's no doubt about it. And and the other thing with that is that there is a system in place, if you're dealing with a financial advisor, um, that if you do have a complaint, there's a process you can go through. And it starts with talking to the advisor. And if you don't get satisfaction, talk to the licensee. But this is also where, again, there's we, we need to take a little bit of responsibility ourselves. You can then take it to a government body that handles complaints if you're not satisfied with what it is. Um, but it if you haven't actually taken the time and the effort to look into what's going on and the financial advisor has given you advice in what's called their best, in what's termed your best interests, then I'm sorry, guys, but ultimately you do need to have a look at that. The, the financial advisor doesn't control the market. As we said before, we haven't got a crystal ball. We can't say, oh, yeah, look, in a week's time, the market's going to tank by 20%, so let's get your money out. We don't have that. So that's one of the things, as much as you get cheesed off with the fact that you, the market has tanked, 
we can't just hold the financial advisor responsible in that respect. No, so again, no, you're absolutely that's right. That's a part of understanding the investment that you're in. Now, in terms of something that's giving those higher returns, comes back to that trade-off concept we talked about before. If you're going to give the higher returns, then the trade-off will be that there's not as much liquidity as if you're putting the money just in a regular bank account. And if absolutely. you put it just in a regular bank account and you get your quarter of 1% as your return, um, but you get it whenever you want the money, that's your trade-off. So it's a very, very much a balancing thing. Um, we uh, talk a lot about doing what we call risk profiling uh, in the uh, advice industry. And it's <clears throat> where we try to assess a person's tolerance for the certain risks that there are with that. So are they the sort of person that's going to be happier getting 2% on their investment, but it's pretty much not guaranteed, but really, really uh, pretty strong, yep. steady? Yep. Or are they the sort of person who says, no, look, I want to get 10% and I'm prepared to put up with the ups and downs in the market because I know to get 10%, I actually have to put up with those ups and downs. And that's where you actually have a look at that. And if you're speaking to a good financial advisor, <clears throat> they'll go through that process with you and help you understand where you sit on that particular scale. Now, if you want to change that and you say, oh, yeah, I know you've come back to me and said I'm more on this uh, on the secure side of things, but I want the big returns and I want them or I'll put up with the volatility, be prepared to sign at the bottom of the line that says, yes, I said I was happy to do this. And then Stick with it. Don't then yep. turn around and say that the planner didn't tell you. Yep. And and moving on, some of the other topics that this particular article raises is is the fact that particularly of those of you that own equities, one of the things I used to work for IT companies and we were offered shares. Now, one of the things that we also had to protect against insider trading were we had blackout periods where coming up to results, we weren't allowed to trade our own shares. And obviously, from a transparency and conflict of interest perspective, even in America, it's like, wow, Americans did that. It's like, ooh, it must be, you know, something that that is valuable. But the other thing that you may or may not be aware of, ladies and gentlemen, that on the ASX, you can actually look at what's called insider selling. So what that means is that on the register, on the ASX, they will have a register of the directors and, and stock owners that are actually in the company, and they have a register of all the stock that they buy and sell. Now, why is that important? Well, if all of a sudden the CEO starts selling a lot of his or her stock, and then all of a sudden, sort of two weeks later, they've resigned... <laughs> Okay, I don't know about you, Phil, but all of a sudden in my head it's going ding, 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 ding. Yes. I've got an alarm bell going, why? Why did they all of a sudden bail, sell up their stock and get the hell out? <laughs> um, and, and so that's certainly a, a big one. And for those with equities, okay, in other things like bonds and, and loans, secured loans and the like, you won't see that kind of thing. But on a publicly traded company, there are registers there that they must abide by, and you can look it up on the internet. Oh, I love the internet. Oh, I love the internet. But they have an insider uh, uh, selling uh, one. Now, they also talk about rising high debt and uh, low return on on equity and, and a, a low valuation. And I guess they are market trends that, you know, they, they're going to highlight whether a share is valued correctly or not. But one of the, the other things, um, Phil, have you had investors or come across people that like short selling, for example? 
Not something I've ever really gone into, uh, Ray, with the clients that I've ever spoken to. It's always been about the long side of things. But look, it's definitely something out there that, again, those who see themselves as being a um, bit of an investment guru, they jump <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting because that's the other thing I look at, particularly in, uh, in, in volatile stocks. There's also something called the short sell. Now, short selling, ladies and gentlemen, if you're not aware, is that's where you go and, and sell a share you don't actually have. So the, the actual upside of doing that means that you're betting on the, the, the actual cost of the share going down. So by selling it before you actually own one, you want the price to go down so that when you buy it, to replace it back in the the, uh, the inventory, you're buying at a lower price than you sold it for, and you make a margin on that. So, um, I mean, for example, uh, one of the stocks that's very uh, strongly shorted is Kogan. Now, Kogan is a fairly, uh, I mean, he's a bit of a character. He's a colourful character. He gets and says and does a lot of interesting things out in the marketplace. But the short sellers love him because there's a lot of volatility. And so for those of you that have risk appetites and Phil, that that commentary about risk profiling, I think is so appropriate. You've got to be careful. You've got to understand your own risk appetite. And so when I talk about short selling or Bitcoin or those, they get a lot of column inches. They get a lot of attention in the media because people make a bucket loads of money out of them. But guess what? On the flip side, it's like when you see a casino. The casino doesn't get built because people win win lots of money. The casinos get built because more and more people lose money than people win. And in short selling and Bitcoin, I don't think we're much different, are we? No, look, the, th- the thing with short selling is it's very different to buying a share and going for the long term because if the share goes up, everybody who's bought the share um, will actually uh, do well with it. But with things like short selling and using options, what you're doing is you're using somebody else's shares to start with. And if you make money, they're going to lose money. So there's winners and losers in that it particular area. Yeah, and you is. need to make sure, and again, very speculative as to uh, um, you, you want to make sure you're on the winning side of it. But that's not always going to happen. So again, be prepared that, yeah, you might have some times where it doesn't actually happen. Mm. Okay. So look, we're just about out of time today, Phil. I, look, we could talk for another three or four shows about some of these things that have red flags because you and I have seen them uh, over the time. And and I think we both mutually are saddened when we read in the press of, of poor old mums and dads, investors getting taken. Yeah. And I don't always think it's their fault. I, I really abhor that kind of commentary that suggests they're the ones to blame. I mean, it's, it's a sad situation. But look, I hope We've been uh, a bit of an education, ladies and gentlemen, some of the red flags. And I think the biggest ones of all, make sure the people that you're dealing with are licensed. They have their authorised representative number and they operate within an AFSL. And we're not just saying that because we do. It's We're saying that because our entire industry must abide by these laws and, and, and the, the appropriate legislation. I think um, that's us for today, Phil. Thanks so kindly for being at the microphone with me today on Dollars and Making Sense. No worries. Thanks for having me back again, Ryan. Wonderful. And I'm sure we'll look forward to tackling some of these and other uh, regulatory and compliance matters in the near future. Thanks for being at the microphone. You're here at Dollars and Making Sense. And until next week, thanks, Phil. And thanks, ladies and gentlemen.